Well, if we come back to 2 Samuel chapter 6, I can begin with a question. Whose fault was it? I mean, a man has died, and the ark isn't where it ought to be. At the start of the chapter, David's got a very clear plan. He's bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, but he has failed in that attempt. We can put it that way. He's failed in that attempt, and someone has died. You can imagine how it happened in modern uh, governmental areas. There would be a public inquiry. How did this all come to pass? How could this be such a complete and utter disaster? Well, of course, some wise sage would come into such an inquiry and say, well, it's all about the cart. It all began with the cart. And, of course, that is true. If the cart had been correctly handled and carted, then Uzzah wouldn't have died. Now, you've got to be careful there, and I think someone else should come upon the passage and say, well, wait a minute. The text is very, very clear. God smote him, verse number 7, for his error. Uzzah is not without blame in this. The anger of the Lord, verse 7, was kindled against Uzzah. The touching of the ark was in itself a sin against the Most High God. We know from 1 Chronicles chapter 13, it says this, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him, and here's the words, because he put his hand to the cart, and there he died before God. So we're not excusing Uzzah. But again, we come back to the start, and we say again, the decision to use the cart was the start of the trouble. So whose fault was it? Who made that decision? Well, the those who would quickly pass the buck from one to the other uh, would say, well, it was to do with the religious leaders. They're meant to teach the law of God. There's been neglect of Bible teaching. Therefore, there wasn't a knowledge of this. And therefore, we didn't know we were doing anything wrong. People always seek to excuse themselves. Ultimately, of course, the priests had the prime responsibility. They were given that by God. They had the duty to ensure that all these matters were carried out properly. But we know things have gone downhill from Eli's times, and the priesthood is not in a very healthy state. So they had the responsibility. But you know what strikes us in a manner that is so unlike what we might find today? The one who has the ultimate responsibility takes the responsibility to himself. David acknowledges that he is responsible for these actions and for the events here. It is apparent in all of this that David is the primary mover in these verses. Verse number 1 again, chapter 6, again David gathered. Verse number 2, and David arose to bring up from thence the ark of God's. David's the great taker of the initiative here. He's the one who is desiring to bring the people back to the basics. As the king anointed over all the people, he's the one who's seeking to reform the nation. And he knows ultimately the buck stops with him. And again, as I say, like, unlike so many others, he takes that responsibility seriously and doesn't seek to pass the blame to others. He's seeking to reverse the apostasy of Eli's time and the declension in Saul's time. Let me prove this to you. Please turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 15. I didn't go here uh, last Lord's Day. I was holding, if you like, holding this back until tonight. But 1 Chronicles 
we have chapters 13, 14, and 15. There are parallel records of what we have in these chapters in 2 Samuel. And do you know how sometimes you use the gospel records to compare and contrast? So you can do the same with some of the events regarding David in the Chronicles that are also contained in the books of First and Second Samuel. But First Chronicles chapter 15, it tells us, David made him houses in the city of David and pitched a place for the ark of God and pitched it for a tent. Now, in the earlier chapters, we've already got the detail regarding Uzzah's death. Verse number 10 of chapter 13, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And so you get to chapter 15, you're reading about the second attempt. David has now pitched a tent for the ark. It's called a tabernacle back in 2 Samuel, not to be confused with the tabernacle in the wilderness. It's a temporary tent for the ark. And then know what it says, verse number 2. Then David said, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. And then he gathers all Israel to bring up the ark of the Lord. Do you see verse number two? David knows the word of God and understands that they made a grave mistake in their actions back in 2 Samuel 6 when they encouraged the new cart to transport the ark to Jerusalem. You've got then the language, verse number 11 of 1 Chronicles 15. David called for Zadok and Abiathar, the priests of the Levites, and said unto them, verse number 12, Ye are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both ye and your brethren, that ye may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it. For because ye did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the Jew order. Who used to blame? Well, quite a number of people. And there's a conspiracy of errors here, a conspiracy of rebellion against God. But David has understood and puts himself, we sought him not after the Jew order. He takes his own responsibility. And he's the one who seeks to bring it. Verse number 15. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thereon. And note these words. These are so significant. As Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. There you have it. What's the issue back in the death of Uzzah and the cart? It is a violation of the word of God. And please, if I go no further tonight, let me make this clear. God is not to be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he reaps. That is true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. And it's true tonight. Do not trifle with the ways of God. Do not play fast and loose when it comes to the command of God. God says it. We do it. End off. That's what it is to be a Christian. It is to hear the word of God and to believe the word of God and to obey the word of God out of the heart. And David is showing us that. He's showing us again the importance. You see, what we're seeing here, if I can turn you back now, and we'll go back to 1 Chronicles, by the way, but going back to 2 Samuel, what you're seeing here, I believe, is further evidence of the power of God in David's life. He has sinned against God, but he is now acting in righteousness. And when you think of that, that impacts how you view his actions in dancing, wearing the ephod. However we may fall upon that issue, we should see 2 Samuel chapter 6. In these, this latter part of the chapter, we see David as a man here walking uprightly. He's walking in obedience. 
He's walking in the ways of God. And that is particularly clear when you think of the stark contrast between David's actions and the attitudes of Michael. What we see here in this chapter is evidence of grace in David's life and signs of an absence of grace in Michael's life. So a kind of subtitle for tonight's sermon is Mr. Grace and Mrs. Graceless. To illustrate the contrast here between what you see in David's life and the life of his wife. So first of all, very simply, let's begin by examining the evidence of God's grace in David. And you have, again, the outline and the bulletin. Again, it highlights the four areas. These are not all we see, but they are four important things that we see in light of David's life in this chapter. First of all, we see the place of repentance. We've already turned your attention to First Chronicles chapter 15, where David makes the point, we didn't do it right the first time. There's a realization of wrongdoing. The Word of God, again, we're not told how did it's all come about. Did somebody bring the Word to him? Did he know in advance? We're not told directly all of that detail. But we know that when he's confronted with the Word of God, he realizes what they did was wrong and what they're going to do going forward is going to be right. That's repentance, isn't it? People say, oh, what does it mean to, to believe the gospel, to repent and believe the gospel? Well, it means a number of things, but it means no less than simply realizing that you've violated God's law, you're guilty before God, and you're going to turn away from your sin and pursue righteousness. That's what it is to repent, seeking the mercy of God in Christ. You see, there's a realization of wrongdoing and a change of action. But what I want to particularly note is that accompanying this realization and this reform is a confession of sin with a going to God for mercy. Note what happens here in contrast to the first time. Verse number 13 of 2 Samuel 6. And it was so that when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. Immediately, as they make progress in recognition of the previous violation of the word of God, they begin to sacrifice unto God. Now, not much detail is given regarding that sacrifice, but there is more when you get to chapter 6 and the verse number 17. They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And please note these words. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. These are offerings to deal with sin. These are not so much thanksgiving offerings. They're offerings that deal with a matter of atonement and forgiveness. And you can read Leviticus chapter 1 or Leviticus 16. You'll read all about the burnt offerings. The animal was consumed in its entirety. It was a means of making atonement. Leviticus 1 verse 14 or verse 4 says, And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him, the burnt offering consumed, picturing again the wrath of God, consuming the sacrifice and not the sacrificer, consuming the offering and not the offerer. All the ceremonies, they would have confessed their sins over the head of the animal. The animal was taken, sacrificed and burned upon the brazen altar in order that atonement be made, that God's wrath would be turned away. David's offering these when the ark is put in its place. There's a recognition. We've sinned against God. We must get the mercy of God. 
And the mercy of God only comes by their sacrifice and blood. The wrath of God, again, being appeased in the offering of a sacrifice, the peace offering. That was not so much devoted towards what God was doing, but it was the time when the, the offerer could then consume that offering himself. They consumed part of the offering. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 7. Read all about the peace offering. And it denoted very simply that the offerer understood that they were now at peace with God. It's a wonderful picture here. We're seeing a sinner repenting. We're seeing someone realizing the error of their ways, repenting of their sins, reforming their actions, but doing so all with the realization that their only hope is in the mercy of God. This is a tremendous demonstration of God's grace in the life of a person. And remember, dear child of God, David is already a newborn child of God. This is not David getting converted. This is a realization for each and every one of us here that we must be prepared in our lives to take the steps of repentance and reformation, holding on to the hope of God in sacrifice. You see, tragically, there are some when they're perhaps taught this way or they learn this way inadvertently, but they go through their Christian life and they rightly lay hold upon the doctrine of justification that all my sins, past, present, and future, they're all under the blood. Praise God for that. But there is the ongoing issue in terms of our communion with God and our sanctification. And there are times, 1 John chapter 1 tells us, that if we sin, we are to confess our sins. And again, lay hold upon the faithfulness and the justice of God to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, dear child of God, is there something in your life tonight? And you know you're violating the word of God. Something you're holding on dearly in your soul. Some particular pattern of sin. And you go back time and time again and you simply say to yourself, I'm okay. I profess faith in Christ those years ago. I'm justified forevermore. Now, you, please, you understand how important I see the doctrine of justification. I taught it this morning again. I'm not denying that. I praise God for our peace rests in that. But do not use that to excuse a pattern of sin and a pattern of disobedience, whereby you realize you're violating the Word of God, and you come to that consciousness, but you suppress it rather than repenting and reforming and laying hold afresh upon the sacrifice. First John 1 is clear. Those who walk in the light at certain times must confess their sins and forsake their sins and cling afresh to the mercy of God. If we don't hold all of this together, we will be deficient in our Christian living. And so is there some here, and you need to forget your sin, forsake your sin, turn away from it and seek forgiveness in Christ Jesus. This is true for the child of God. But it's also true for the new babe in Christ. This pattern of repentance and laying hold upon sacrifice is the pattern that's true for you tonight if you're out of Christ. The only hope you have is of a sacrifice offered on your behalf. The only way to know peace with God and to take that peace offering is getting to the Calvary, getting to the blood of Christ. And afresh laying hold upon the mercy of God in the person of his son. You see, what does grace do? 
a grace in the life of an individual enables them to understand this book. They see the word of God. They see the will of God. And they open the book and they say, this is like a murder to my heart. And I realize I'm not conforming to this murder. I don't look like this. So they find themselves on a conviction. And in conviction they come by grace to know true contrition, humility, that grief of sin. And then they come to forsake that sin all the while looking to Christ Jesus. If that is your testimony tonight, that's God's grace in your life. You didn't make this up in your own imagination, think to yourself, this seems like a good idea. I've turned 18, 19, 20. It's about time I improve my life. No, this is all of God's grace. We only get here by God's grace. It's the first thing we see in David's experience, repentance. Secondly, we see humility. And here I turn your attention to verse number 14 and David's practice of girding himself with a linen ephod. Again, there are different ideas regarding this, the ephod. It was certainly part of the priestly undergarments. And so some would see here, David in some ways, laying hold upon the priestly work of worshiping God and it's part of worship. But I think in other ways, we can simply see it as a mark of humble dress. You saw all the pomp and ceremony of British monarchy in recent times. David didn't act like that. This is a tremendous celebration. Thousands of people are marching to Jerusalem. Well, you, you want the king to wear the finest finery of his monarchy. You want the king to, to wear all the accoutrements of, of monarchy and dignity and honor. That's Michael's problem, at least part of the problem. You're humiliating yourself in front of all the others. You're, the servants are, are looking at you and you're, you're, if I can put it gently, you're in your underwear. That's what it was. You wouldn't be seen in public in an ephod. That's what you wore under your garments. But rather, he's taken the form of a humble servant. He was the mighty king, reckoning with his own sin, as bringing the ark back into Jerusalem in a spirit of profound humility. I said it before, I said it again, it's a dreadful thing when a sinner saved by grace imbibes a proud spirit. David's been saved by God's grace. He's come to see his sin again. And that works out in the externals. He is humble before the Lord. Remember Michael says this, verse number 20. How glorious was the king of Israel today. She's being, of course, incredibly sarcastic here. He's uncovered himself in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants. Like one of the vain fellows. Shamelessly. It's all this, this idea of, of just the humiliation that he must feel. And look what David says. And I paused. When I read this, I paused. Verse number 21. It was before the Lord. Again, the simple way of the original, just simply those words, before the Lord. His audience was not the handmaids. His audience was the heavenly host, the God of heaven. That's what mattered to David. And so in humility, he comes before the Lord. Therefore will I play before the Lord, verse number 21, humility in his worship. Thirdly, we see the mark of grace in joy. Joy and dancing. Verse number 14, and David danced before the Lord 
with all his might. We're not told a lot about this dance. It was certainly energetic. It was with all his might. We're told in verse number 16 that Michael sees him and he's leaping and dancing. He's doing a twirl and a spin in all of his dancing. This is exuberant beyond what we can even begin to imagine, I believe. We can barely understand what he's doing. We're told in verse number 12 that this was a mark of gladness. Verse 12, it says at the very end, they brought it into the city of David with gladness. And David danced before the Lord. We are often perturbed by this verse because we've got some sort of view of dancing that is sensual and ungodly. And we insert our understanding of dancing into this particular narrative. Or else we are those, again, in a Reformed congregation who are deeply uncomfortable with some of the excesses of the charismatic movement. And we see some of their craziness in public worship. We say, well, we want nothing to do with that. We might go to the point and even say, Michael, of course, she wasn't all right, but maybe she had a point. You ever gone there reading this portion? Oh, the issue was her heart, but she was right to object to him dancing. This was excess. Don't pretend you're not at least open to that potential in your mind. Well, let me tell you very clearly, there are no rebukes against David in this passage with regards to his dancing. No censure, no correction. In fact, when it comes to the end of the chapter, it is Michael that is judged for her attitude. Verse number 23, she had no child until the day of her death. She suffers the judgment of God in barrenness, that which was a reproach for a woman in that time. Now, to back up a little bit, I do not think we need to be concerned I don't think you should be concerned that I'm going to remove the pews from the church here and have people up and down the aisle dancing. Any more than I'd ask you to come and worship God in your underwear. The ephod is not normative for public worship, either is the dancing. This is unique and a special set of circumstances. This does not translate into Ephesians chapter 7 when it comes to instruction of public worship. They're not there. So don't look at this and say, well, clearly this is a license for us all to dance in the aisles. It's not. And it does not need to worry us in that regard. But I tell you, when you read of this, it does worry me. Because what we see here is something that is not very common in our own experience. We see someone who is so full of joy in the Lord that nothing will hold back the redeemed man from delighting in the Lord with his whole humanity. He is so consumed with joy, overtaken with joy, that nothing will hold him back from showing that externally. You know, there are Christians, and they will go out and dance in the streets when their sport team wins some major trophy. And they're Christians, and they will dance in the street when their political candidate wins an election. And they'll, they'll burst out with joy, and they'll dance, and they'll leap, and they'll swing around, and do all of those manner of things when it comes to those things, but not when it comes to the things of the Lord. And that's a very, very serious challenge to our souls. You see, when we think of the joy, note the cause of his joy here. The cause of his joy is the presence of God in gospel truth. 
It's joy in the exaltation of God. The ark is back in the city of David. Or the ark, if you like, is in the city of David. It's, in, it's back in the, it's in the center of the life of the nation. I suppose to put it in New Testament terms, Christ is preeminent. Well, we saw last time how the ark signifies the presence of God in the person of Christ. The shitting wood overlaid with gold into which is the, the, the tables of stone upon which sits the lid, the ark, or the mercy seat upon which goes the blood and the cherubim. They look with fever as the justice of God is satisfied. It's all Christ in the gospel and David rejoices in this. Uh, again, take it forward. It is joy in the centrality of Christ in worship. Joy in the faithfulness of God. If you can turn across to 1 Chronicles again very, very quickly. He takes great delight in God's faithfulness. Verse number 15. Uh, we'll come back again to this, this psalm later on. But it says there in verse 15. Be ye mindful always of his covenant. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. He's, he's rejoicing in God's faithfulness. God's keeping his word. He's rejoicing in the reform of the nation. He's rejoicing that the days of Eli and Saul, all that declension, all that apostasy is being turned around and God is visiting his people. Those, those are causes for great joy. Should we not rejoice when Christ is exalted? When we see the faithfulness of God? When we see the people of God being obedient to the ways of God, should those things not cause us great joy? Oh, hum. Here we are again. Back in the Lord's house, another Lord's day. Do we have to do it all day? Every time we gather, Christ is exalted, God is faithful, and God's people are obedient to the ways of God. It is a marvelous thing when we gather together in God's house here in the Lord's day. And we can barely shuffle our feet to get to the doors. No leaping and dancing and praising God. Because we have not perhaps the heart that we ought to have to see the importance of these things, to see the significance of these things, and then to worship God and wonder how good is our God. The character of joy. The cause, again, the presence of God in Christ. The character, it is exuberant. I use the term, it's not normative, but it does challenge us. You know, there is not a choice to make when it comes to worship. And yet, so often, I'm guilty, guilty as charged. We preach in such a way that we give people a choice. Would you like joy or would you like reverence? Do you want charismatic worship or do you want reformed worship? As if there's some choice in that. When the Bible says, rejoice with trembling. We're not a conflict. David here lacks no reverence. In fact, he's coming with profound humility before his God while leaps and dances and praises God. You see, this comes, this joy comes with commendation. I've mentioned to you the words of 1 Chronicles chapter 16. If you turn back there very quickly, you'll see in the verse number 7, it says, Then on that day, David delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. It's a passing issue. But what you see here is that as David is dancing and rejoicing in his gods, 
He's under the inspiration of the Spirit of God and He's penning inspired Scripture. He's not in the flesh. He's in the Spirit. And He's in the Spirit rejoicing in His God. You take the words of 1 Chronicles chapter 16, you'll find them in Psalm 105, Psalm 106, Psalm 96. They're divided, they're used, they're reorganized, but they become part of the sacred songbook of God's people, marking the fact that David is in the spirits as the ark returns to Jerusalem. So be very careful how you comment and critique David in this occasion. This is a spiritual man acting spiritually. And if nothing else, it challenges us regarding the nature of our own hearts and the joy that we have in the things of God. Fourth evidence, there's a generous spirit here. You see chapter 6 again, back to 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 18 and following. And you see David makes an end of offering burnt offerings and he blesses the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Again, there are some, and I think this is helpful, that they see something here of David again as a type of Christ. A kingly priest after the order of Melchizedek in terms of the future fulfillment of these things. That as the king, he blesses the people. Not that he takes himself a priestly role. Uh, We saw again in Saul's time, that is not according to the word of God. But he is those, he is one who now has a generous spirit towards the people. Look what he does. He gives them a cake of bread, verse 19, some flesh and some wine. And he he gives the people, what's this all about? Well, why, why did the father of the prodigal throw a party when the prodigal returns? Because he wants others to share in his joy. Why do we, why do you throw a graduation party or a birthday party for family? Because you want others to come and share in the joy. And so David here, in all of his, all of his demonstration, he's, he's showing again the generosity of his spirit. That I want others to feel as I feel right now. This great and joyful occasion should be shared amongst the people of God. That's a mark of grace. If you have no burden for the joy of others in the house of God, there's a real problem regarding your heart and your spirit. If you say, Lord, bless me, and stop, there's an issue there again regarding your spirituality. Grace gives people a burden for the joy of others, a desire that others would share in the joy of the Lord in their own personal spiritual walk. If I can turn this around, it should cause us grief when we see the Lord's people struggling with joy, battling with all of the things that would overcome their minds and they find it hard to get to the point where they rejoice in Christ. Grace is a wonderful thing. It takes us again back to Christ in the gospel. It makes us humble when by nature we're proud. It gives us joy. And it gives us a spirit towards others. And if that is your joy tonight, can I tell you again, it's all of grace. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. I see a faint reflection of some of these things in my life, and I praise God for it. I see it in your lives, and I praise God for it. But I remind you all, it's all of God. It's all of grace. But once more, we see grace in the life of David. Well, our time is marching on. Very quickly, please note some of the signs of grace lacking in Mrs. Graceless, 
the problems we see in Michael's attitude and actions. I do believe grace is absent here. Again, I, I don't want to be uncharitable. Is she just cold of heart at this point in her life? But there are warning signs regarding Michael in all the scriptures. She is the one, of course, who used the image to pretend it was David in 1 Samuel chapter 19. She has an idol in her home. People who have idols in their home, they're slow to worship God properly. What's also noting, please note verse 16. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window. Verse number 20. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. Verse number 23. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child. Young people, what's the common theme? Was once not enough? Well, get the point. We know who she is. The daughter of Saul. One time. Two times. Three times. Indicating that she's a daughter living consistently with the heart of Saul. She lacks grace. And she despises David. Verse number 16. She despised him in her heart. This is the woman who in 1 Samuel 18 loved David. She loves David. And now how quickly things turn and she despises David in her heart. Out of such a heart of bitterness comes the caustic sarcasm of verse number 20. How glorious was the king of Israel today. It is clearly sarcastic. I've had to learn over the years that sarcasm can be humorous but caustic. And so it is here. It's being misused in such a way as to burn into someone's consciousness. Oh, I understand. Michael's had a hard time. Think of her life. She comes to love David. She's given to David, taken from David, brought back to David. But this time she goes back to David this time and he's got all the other wives as well. Life's not easy for her. You can, you can imagine her perhaps on a psychiatrist's couch at some point discussing all of her psychological problems and how difficult life is for her. Look at my life's involved. Of course I'm bitter. How does that sound like the word of God? And yet how quickly it comes out of people's mouths. I have so much reason to be bitter, I can't help myself. Oh, providence deals some very, very hard blows. But if you find yourself in a position where you've walked through some very hard providences, I encourage you every day, pray, God, keep me from becoming bitter. Bitterness eats away at the soul, destroys the soul. And you get to the point when you cannot see God's work in someone else. Graceless eyes will not see what God is doing here. Undoubtedly, she's had a hard path. But verse 23 makes it clear that God is against her in this situation. We're not told exactly how it came about that she had no child, but the text certainly reads as a word of judgment from the Lord. Oh, undoubtedly, there is great mortal disruption here. I just, I, time. Please, please note the impact of spiritual inequality in the home. When you have different people on different pages, when it comes to spiritual things, it brings great tension into the home. And there are some, and we know of others, again, in this church and around the church who suffer 
with the affliction of having unsaved loved ones. And there are the challenges that brings into the home, and we should not neglect it. In fact, we should be praying for those folks with great, great fervency. Michael couldn't share in David's joy. She couldn't see David's joy. She couldn't enjoy what he was enjoying. And so it brings hurt and division and disruption into the home. Young people, please listen to me right now. Do not willingly enter an unequal yoke in marriage. If you're a child of God and you find yourself falling head over heels for someone who's not a Christian, please run a mile, two miles, three miles. Get as far away as you can from that unequal yoke. You will find yourself, you're captivated with the joy of infatuation, but time will come when there'll be grief in your soul when you find yourself in an unequal yoke with someone who's not a child of God. Do not do so willingly. I say willingly because sometimes that happens. It's not deliberate, but somebody for some reason or other pretends to be a child of God for a season. The marriage happens and then it all falls apart. I understand that, but do not go into that with your eyes open. Great challenges and troubles. But for all that, please just note very quickly, what are the evidences of gracelessness in her heart? She's blind to God's grace in others. So she misunderstands and misrepresents David's actions. She despises religious exuberance. Don't the ungodly despise religious exuberance? All that hearty singing and fervent praying and zealous evangelism and faithful services, all of those things that you Christians do, you're a bunch of zealots, fundamentalists. Isn't that what they say about us? They don't see what it is to know the joy of the Lord. See, by God's grace, We do see the cause for joy, and by God's grace, the Lord comes first. See, graceless hearts are more concerned with the appearance in the sight of man than of God. That's the tragedy, really, isn't it? What do other people think about me? Or what will other people think about us? You know, if you're full of the joy of the Lord, the only one that you really care about is the Lord himself. What does the Lord think about my exuberant joy right now? I don't care if people despise me for singing heartily. I don't care if people despise me for praying loudly and fervently in the prayer meeting. I don't care if people wonder, what am I doing? Why are you always evangelizing and talking to others about the Lord? Why are you doing all of these things? I love the Lord Jesus. He's my Lord and my God. And I do not care what others will think about me. That's the spirit of the child of God. But graceless hearts, they despise these things. I want to be a David and not a Michael. And yet I do find at times I see Michael-like traits in my heart. I need to get the sword of the spirit out and put these things to death. And get before God and ask for God's Spirit to enable me more and more. Lord, make me more like David in this portion. Rejoicing in the glory of Christ in the Scriptures. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh, eternal God, we come before Thee. We thank You, Lord, again for the, uh, just the wonderful things that we can see in these narratives. And we pray, oh God, You'd help us again to, to understand and apply them carefully. 
But we do pray, oh God, I pray for our congregation. I pray for my own heart and for all of us that we be more and more captivated by the glory of Christ Jesus. That our souls will be filled with joy. That each and every Lord's Day we would marvel and wonder and rejoice that Christ is preeminent. That God's people are obedient. Oh Lord, we pray that these things would be so. Do bless our hearts. Help us, O Lord, to be glad in Thee. Encourage us throughout this whole week. May the joy of the Lord be our strength. Watch over us, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.